is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of April 10th, 2023. There were five Jeopardy episodes this week. Like most weeks. <laughs> like most weeks. I'm just trying to change it up, okay? The people don't want to hear the exact same words. They want familiarity, but not... But variety. Yes. Actually, somebody who works in the candy industry told me told me that that is what people are always looking for in candy. They don't want something entirely new. They want mm-hmm. something familiar, but not exactly the same, which is why they keep having, you know, like you keep finding like, you know, the Reese's are turned inside out. The M&M's have a new color, right? Like right. people want familiarity, but variety. Anyway, there were five Jeopardy episodes this week, and we're going to talk about all five of them. But <laughs> dude, I, I don't know. I, I You're doing great. This is amazing. It feels fresh. <laughs> All right. I need to stop talking. How was your week, Kyle? It was boring. My I had SAT proctoring three days this week, which Ooh. was fine. Which was fine. Low stress, mm-hmm. just boring because you're not allowed to do anything while you're proctoring other than watch the students take a test. And believe it or mm-hmm. not. That's not very exciting. Yeah, that doesn't sound very exciting. Because, yeah. I mean, for all of the obvious reasons, but it's... I mean, have you ever watched someone else be bored? (laughs) Are other people bored during tests? Well, the kids are bored. Yeah. Like, I... None of... There is not a single, single person who goes into that... Well, that's not true. I'm sure there is someone. But it is extremely uncommon that somebody goes into that situation like yes i am excited to do this i am looking forward to it this fills me with joy and energy and positivity it's just like they're they're just getting through it and gosh it Mm -hmm. is mind numbing Mm -hmm. Uh, plus i'm just like philosophically opposed to standardized testing anyway yeah fair that is that is a different issue but that was my week Mm -hmm. how was yours it was it was okay. We had our very last day of spring break this week. Uh, it got extended into the day after Easter because we didn't use enough snow days this year. And um, the teacher contract is that if we don't use any snow days, we, we used one. But if we don't use enough, then we have to add some additional days off. So we were off on Monday and I took my kids to the aquarium and I saw an octopus. Nice. It was great. Did you um, forge a deep connection with it, like my? No, it was teacher? hiding inside of a cave, but I did spot it mm. and know where it was. And then I saw its eye at one point, and mm. I kept waiting for it to come out so that we could forge a deep spiritual bond, and I could experience learning and growth, and I don't know, find new hope in life. But it just stayed in the cave, so mm. that's okay. Maybe next time. Maybe. Yeah. Are you playing video games these days? Yes. <laughs> Would not, you like to well, elaborate? Kind, kind of. Not really very much, to be to be perfectly frank. I guess, I mean, it's like official news now. I, I'm not, I don't have a lot of time right now mm-hmm. because, and this will be news to 
everyone except like, you know, the handful of people that I've talked to, but I am changing careers at the end of this school year. And in order to do that, I have to learn new skills and Mm -hmm. those new skills take a lot of time and a lot of effort for me. So that's taking up most of my time. Yeah. So yeah, that's basically it. So I don't really have (laughs) updates on the video game front. Okay. Do you? Well, I did finish Spiritfarer, which had a, you know, it had a nice, you know, kind of moving ending. And I have returned to Zelda Breath of the Wild per my family's request. And I am, I'm, I'm going along. I'm off the Great Plateau. Great Plateau? Yes. Yes, that's what that's called. And I made it to Kakariko Village. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's fun. It's so relaxing, except when it's not, you know, but like. (laughs) But a lot of it is just kind of going through the wilderness. Yeah. You just go through the wilderness and you like, you know, grab apples and mushrooms and like lizards. (laughs) Um, And I, I saw like right before recording, I was playing and like saw a horse and like snuck up behind it and jumped on it. And then I was riding a horse. So it was amazing. (laughs) It's pretty great. I'm enjoying it a lot. Yeah. So that's my video game update. I'll keep you all posted, man. I still have to play breath of the wild. I I have started it like three times and then Mm -hmm. get too busy to play for a while. And then I just don't get back into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I actually, I had like my saves were from over four months ago and I couldn't remember how to work any of the controls. And so I just like, I started over from zero. I was like, "Mm," like the great plateau is kind of from what I hear, like the tutorial where you learn how to work the controls. I was like, "Mm." might as as well just, just like, just learn that over. Yeah. It does. It does take a little bit of investment. So I don't know. On the one hand, Maybe it's better to save until a time when you have, you more, know, time. have more time. On yeah. the other hand, Breath of the Wild 2 is about to come out. So, you know. So the pressure's on. <laughs> it's either way you win. I, you're right. However, I think my track record for video games in the last decade has been, oh, I'll just wait a few years until it's on sale and then I'll buy mm-hmm. it and play it. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Right. Um, Jeopardy? Jeopardy. Uh, should we talk about Jeopardy? We should do that since that is ostensibly what our show is it is ostensibly what we talk about here and at the top of the program you did promise the listeners that we would discuss all five all five episodes so we have to at the very least do that yep okay so the monday game the contestants are pj brennan a physics teacher from bayonne new jersey robbie ramirez a writer from orlando florida and rachel clark a director of client strategy from washington dc whose one day cash winnings total sixty five hundred dollars and the jeopardy round categories are recent events mousselaneous mm-hmm. a la the french cooking style the nation in question music's missing links and self ease each correct response will begin with s-e-l-f E, mm-hmm. which I saw the category and was hard pressed to come up with more than one because I was like self esteem is the only one I can think of, and indeed that was the two hundred dollar category, but with the two hundred dollar clue. <clears throat> but there are there are plenty of self e 
phrases. There are. Yeah. Self-employed. Self-expression. At the $1,000 level, obvious and easy to understand. I thought self-evident, but they were looking for self-explanatory. Maybe they would have taken self-evident. Maybe it has a slightly different shade of meaning. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think they would have taken both. I really liked the French cooking style category. Yeah, I thought that was a lot of fun. I agree. They give a la something and you have to tell what the the something is like. A la boulangere in the style of this man's wife and implying the use of an oven at the $800 level. That's Baker. Mm hmm. The boulangerie is French for a bakery, like a bread bakery, mm-hmm. as opposed to a patisserie, patisserie, which is where you would go to get like, like pastry, like dessert things. Like I think in the U.S. that tends to just be one thing, right? Or just a supermarket department. Yeah, but. pretty much. <laughs> like, I mean, there are bakeries but if around. Yeah, if you're going but. to a standalone bra- bakery, you would expect that they would have bread and you know cake things the, the other stuff yeah, yeah. i um, learned a la nantua in the style of nantua <laughs> made <laughs> with these crustaceans that look like tiny lobsters robbie guessed what are langoustines mm-hmm. i don't know what those are but that oh. was incorrect yeah. it's crayfish or crawdads yeah langoustines also look like tiny lobsters hmm but yeah. just not the right kind of tiny lobster. Mm-hmm. Yep. Interesting. I haven't lived near an ocean for most of my life. I think that's, yeah. I think that's really the, the crux of this issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see langoustines around a lot. Known variously as the Norway lobster, Dun- Dublin Bay prawn, schlobster. <laughs> <laughs> a shrimp slash lobster. <laughs> uh-huh. Sure, yeah. yeah. Someone who was mm-hmm. mad at them gave him that nickname for sure. The most important commercial crustacean in Europe. Really? That is what this set of quotation marks on Wikipedia says. <laughs> well, who am I to argue? <laughs> All right. Daily double number one is in the recent events category at the $1,000 level. At pick number 10, Rachel finds it. She is at $1,400. Robbie's at $600. PJ is at $1,800. And she bets it all and gets the clue. Jeff Bezos's 400-foot yacht had big problems getting out of this Dutch city with a shipping and shipbuilding tradition. And she gets it correct with what is Rotterdam. Mm-hmm. So at the end of... The Jeopardy round. Rachel is in the lead at 6,200. Robbie is at 4,400. And PJ is at 4,200. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. That's ancient history. The main city in the movie. Air travel. Novels by, quote, a river runs through it. And quantum science. Which was a video category. Featuring mm-hmm. Spiros Michalikas. Michalakis. I don't remember that person's name, so I apologize to them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, all about quantum science. We had a $1,600 triple stumper in novels by quote that I wondered whether this was familiar to you, Kyle. Mr. Trask is from New England. He plans to settle here. He's been West before, though. Did you like I don't feel like we had any of the same like keywords. No. 
um, as the time this was a final jeopardy for you um mm -hmm. yeah it was east of eden i yep. i didn't i didn't know that the, i didn't know this i also did not get it because i've yeah. never actually read east of eden no i know a few things about it and apparently the <laughs> apparently. name of the character mr trask is not one of the things yes me neither yeah. The river run th runs through a category I thought was trickier than I don't know than I than I thought it would be, mm. given you know the the conceit is like the name of a river will be within the answer. Yeah, they pick things like odor. That one threw me. Yeah, any business activity or manufacturing in general. They were it was a triple stumper. They were looking for industry with the which Indus. Indus, yes. Yeah, that one, I just, that, it, I mean, it works. It's a good question. I just thought like, wow, yeah, I would never, yeah. I was never going to get there. All right. Daily Double number two is in novels by quote at the $800 level. And Robbie finds it at pick number 13. He is at 14,000 with Rachel at 7,400 and PJ at 7,800. And he wagers 4,000 and gets the clue. What you see there are not giants, but windmills. And he recognizes that it's Don Quixote. Yep. Which I did a deep. You did a deep dive on. Yes. Indeed, I did. And Daily Double number three is in the River Runs Through a category at the $1,600 level. Pick number 28. So it was very late. In the round, PJ finds it. So everyone got one. Set 9,400. Rachel's at 9,800. Robbie's at 22,400. He wagers only 2,000. I mean, this is your chance to get within yeah. striking distance, and that, that was not it. He gets the clue domesticated fowl collectively, and he gets it correct with what are poultry, which is what I would have guessed without thinking about, like, without realizing what river it is, but it's the Po. Yeah. That, I mean, cool. Hmm. That's just yep. tricky. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Rachel is at 10,200. Robbie is at 22,400. PJ is at 11,400. So Robbie does not quite have a lock. And the final Jeopardy category is famous names. And the clue is in 1966, the year of his death, he shared plans for an experimental prototype community in Florida. And all of the contestants got it correct. We go to Rachel first, who has who is Walt Disney and a wager of 1201 to get her to 11,401, putting her a dollar above where PJ starts Final Jeopardy. PJ got it correct also, though, with a wager of 10,600. Oh, oh, I see. Very nice, PJ. Very nice. That puts PJ at 22,000 because we're expecting Robbie to wager. A cover bet would be exactly $401. And if he mm -hmm. misses, he will drop to $1 below where PJ has landed. Yeah, but Robbie has it correct as well with who is Walt Disney and a wager of 1400 a little bit more than strictly necessary, which gives him 23800 and the win. And of course, the experimental prototype community didn't really come to fruition, but is the the, the namesake of, of Epcot, the theme right. park. Yeah, that was that was kind of the connection to make Robbie's from Orlando. So it was probably a 
especially a gimme for him but i thought it was i i thought this one was accessible but you know yeah i also, I mean, <laughs> I also sure. know that at this point i have got i am i immersed enough into like disney parks that i i have no sense of proportion anymore yeah you you yeah you are among the more specialized yeah. in terms of that knowledge mm-hmm. yeah. well on tuesday we have the contestants cat jepson an artist originally from Virginia Beach, Virginia, Mark Such, a theater professor from Concord, North Carolina, and Robbie Ramirez, a writer from Orlando, Florida, who just won $23,800. And the Jeopardy round categories are Bad Boys in Books, Architecturally Speaking, I Got the Receipts, A Presidential Last Name, Wales, and Time for a Little Music with Little in Quotation Marks. And I thought for sure they'd put a little night music in there, but they didn't. Yeah, Maybe you would that think. would have been too obvious. <laughs> the $800 level. I thought everyone but me had forgotten that song. I'll keep you my this, sang the All-American Rejects. Though having a number one hit might not be the best way to do that. That's the song Dirty Little Secret, which what has happened to the All-American Rejects since then? I don't know. I also don't know. Yeah. I also am not too concerned. Yeah. It was a bop, though. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was the number one hit. It was. The $800 of bad boys and books with a name fit for a Roman emperor. This rude boy falls into Willy Wonka's river and gets sucked up by a super pipe. Robbie got it. That's Augustus Gloop because of course it's Mm -hmm. Augustus Gloop. Yeah. But also I like, I I realize yes, his first name is Augustus, but it, it it felt like just such a non sequitur. <laughs> like name fit for a Roman emperor. This dude fell in the chocolate river. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like what what does his name have to do with anything other than that's simply his name? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was funny. yeah. Daily Double number one is in that same bad boys and books category. It's at the thousand dollar level, and Robbie finds it at pick number fourteen. He's at 4,200 with Mark at 1,400 and Kat at 2,200 and he wagers 1,200 and gets the clue. You've been brought up bad. Fagin will make something of you, says this rascal to Oliver Twist. And that is the artful Dodger. Now, Uh, do you think they would have accepted the Dodger? Absolutely not. have to be the artful Dodger? No. Are there other Dodgers in Oliver Twist? I do no, but I don't think that Dodger is like functions as a last name here, right? Like, but what if you say the Dodger? I mean, I'll leave that to the judges, but I wouldn't <laughs> take it. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. Robbie knows it's the Artful Dodger, so we're all good. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, Robbie's at seventy four hundred, off to a pretty strong start. Mark with Mark with thirty two hundred, Cat with forty six hundred, and the double Jeopardy categories are no Prime Minister adapters. One hot MoMA. That's the Museum of Modern Art. The Ivy League. Queen Victoria Geography. And a language of consonant plus vowel. Each response will be two letters in that order. Mm -hmm. I have to apologize for not mentioning this in my deep dive last week. The $800 level of Queen Victoria Geography Two Australian states are named for her, Victoria and this one whose territory includes Queensland. part of the Great Barrier Reef. I mentioned the Great Barrier Reef, that's that's Queensland, but I did not mention that when they were naming things in Australia, 
they named Victoria after Victoria. And then they, I don't remember. Ah, I should have looked this up. They wanted to name Queensland, like something else after someone else, like maybe after Albert. I don't remember, but the queen was like, no, you'll just name it after me too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Cause <laughs> when you're queen, I guess you get to do that. You can do that. Yep. I liked the adapters category. Interesting stuff in there. Some of the stuff I hadn't heard of. I didn't know anything about Fire Island, although I figured it out, figured out that $400 clue based on the reference to Elizabeth mm-hmm. Bennett. But the $800 level novelist Deg- Dave Eggers helped Spike Jones adapt Maurice Sendak's classic book into this 2009 film that is Where the Wild Things Are, which I thought was an interesting adaptation. I don't know. I haven't gone back to it. I watched it when it came out in 2009. I haven't, I yeah. haven't watched it since. I don't think I have either. The $1,600 level referenced a show that I just watched recently. Neil Druckmann, creator of this video game, partly inspired by the book, The World Without Us, helped adapt it for HBO in 2023. It's The Last of Us, which, oof, that show. That's, are you still not watching stressful television? That's some stressful television. <laughs> yeah, I'm not in a position right now to really take on more of an emotional yeah. or mental mm-hmm. burden. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll, I, will, I will get there. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to us. get there, but it's, it was a great show. But oh, man, it is very stressful television. I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Daily Double number two is in the language of consonant plus vowel at the $2,000 level. Pick number eight. Cat finds it. She's at 7,800. Robbie's at 9,000. Mark is at 4,000. And Cat wagers 3,000. It's the clue this rhyming pair are the 12th and 13th letters of the Greek alphabet. And she gets it correct with what are mu and nu. Mm hmm. Yeah. And then she goes over to the $1,600 level of one hot MoMA, gets that one correct and then takes us to the two thousand dollar level of that category where she finds daily double number three and at this point she's at twelve thousand four hundred robbie and mark are right where we left them at nine thousand and four thousand respectively because cat has you know gotten the the one intervening correct answer this time she wagers five thousand and gets the clue his number one a nineteen forty eight which includes some of his handprints, has been on exhibit in the David Geffen galleries. And she knows this one. It is Jackson Pollock. Mm. The game graph there as she hits daily double two and three with a major, with a large correct answer in between. She just sort of slingshots into the sky. It's, It's a fun graph. I think that that Jackson Pollock painting is the one. Yeah, no, that's the one. That my that my grandmother may may God rest her soul stood in front of and shook her head and said, "I just don't see what makes this art." So, <laughs> <laughs> like, Grandma, well, it's Jackson Pollock at the moment, so I'm pretty sure something does, whether you can see it or not. Right. Perhaps reconsidering your definition of art is what is necessary. This here. maybe this conversation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I try to have this conversation with all of my students at some point of like when we have this talk about what is art or what is music. I am basically never asking you if you like it mm-hmm. because that's not relevant to what this term is. Right. Like let's, let's talk about what it means. And then later on you can talk about whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. And if you never want to listen to what I'm showing you again, that's fine. That's up to you. 
but you don't get to walk around defining things just because you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I hear students may, you know, say that kind of talk, I'm like, you know who you sound like? My old white dad. <laughs> That's who you sound like. And they're like, oh, man, no, what? No. I'm like, yeah, you do. Anytime there's hip hop of any kind, he's just like, what is this? This isn't music. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, mm-hmm. Well, that's off topic, but we are at the end of the double Jeopardy round. Robbie has a score of 7,400. He had a rough second half there. Mark is up to 13,600, but Kat is at 23,800, which is a high score, but not a runaway, as Ken points out. The final Jeopardy category is Nobel Peace Prize winners, and the clue? At times, they each lived on Villa. Kazi Street in Soweto. So it claims to be the world's only street home to two Nobel Peace Prize winners. This was a triple stumper. Some of them got Mm -hmm. close. Robbie wrote who are Kissinger and Merkel must have thought this was in Germany. I don't know. Yeah. If you don't know where Soweto is, then it would be real hard to pin this. And so that's incorrect. He wagered everything but $100. So he drops to 100. Mark wrote who are Mandela and Gandhi which is not a bad guess because Gandhi did live in South Africa mm-hmm. and he wagered it all, but Gandhi is incorrect. And so he drops to zero and Kat wrote who are Mandela and Obama, which is also incorrect and wagered 3401. So Kat drops to 20,399. It's Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Desmond Tutu mm-hmm. to South African Nobel Peace Prize winners. My first thought, cause like I know like Soweto, I was like, okay, Mandela and then I like automatically pair him with Declerc because they won oh. together. Mm, and so I was like, yeah. oh, Mandela and Declerc. And then I was like, wait, Declerc would have never not. lived in Soweto. Nope. What? What? That was like no. the whole thing. It's like a whole issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait, oh, no, no, it can't be. It can't be Declerc. No, yeah. It's got to be. Yeah. And I, I mean, I got there, but. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. I did a tour of Soweto when I was in South Africa, and nice. I think I remember hearing that, like being on that street and like having the tour guide say that. So, cool. yeah, yeah. So I, I, I knew this one, but I see, I see where it's tricky. All right. So Wednesday, April twelfth, our contestants are Ben Chan, a philosophy professor from Green Bay, Wisconsin; Laura Caton, a nonprofit arts administrator from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania; and Kat Jepson, an artist originally from Virginia Beach, Virginia whose one-day cash winnings total 20399 And the Jeopardy round categories are Historic Canada, How Are You Feeling, Say the Roman Numeral, Dining Out, Doggy Bag, and Leftovers. The gimmick of Say the Ro- Roman Numeral was fun. The, all of the answers were words that can be spelled, you know, using using the Roman numeral letters and like in an order that, you know, makes sense as a Roman numeral. Yeah. Um, so they defined it. And then they also gave you the, the number and whichever way you could get to it, you could, you know, you could, you could say the word or you could say the sequence of letters, I guess. Right. So cake in a box, 1009. That's mix. M is a thousand. I X is nine because that's, because Roman numerals do that. That makes know. a lot of sense. Uh, yeah. I don't know why that was so hard for me to parse, but <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it made sense when they, when they got it, but I, I don't know what my brain ran into, but Ben did pretty well. Yeah. He seemed to seem to catch it. I mean, he also just did pretty well. Yeah. Across the board. Oh yeah. He was the, actually the only one who got correct responses mm-hmm. in, in this category. category. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he got four of them, and one was a triple stumper. A Greek letter rhyming with by 
that is X I or a Greek letter rhyming with by eleven. That is he. How how do people pronounce that in English? I don't know. I think they. I think we would say Zai. Zai is that? There's there's the. I mean, yeah. Rhyme. I think I think if I'd stopped to think about rhyming with by, my brain would have broken because. When you're learning biblical Greek, there is no letter that rhymes with by, not pi, not pi or, or phi it, or c or or um, key or key. Yes, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Like cuz um, yeah, I'm trying to think of like, you know, from college fraternities, xi I'm pretty sure is is what we say for xi. Yeah. We we didn't have we didn't have um, fraternities per se where I, where I went, it's, it's complicated, but (laughs) it's complicated and they need to deal with it better, but that's Mm -hmm. not come that, that particular piece of Greek life did not come up for me. Hmm. Yeah. So my, my main exposure to the Greek alphabet was learning Greek where it's like, where learning the actual language, the actual language. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's in, in, at least in like, New Testament Greek, like Koine Greek, what, the the Greek I was learning, the I sound you make by like by putting together an alpha and an iota, iota. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, right. gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Yeah, the and iota by itself makes like an i or e sound, right? So all of those. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, this is this is too much. It's too much. Emily, settle down. I was hoping that the dining out category would be kind of up my alley, and then a lot it of was, these I was perplexed by. Didn't, yeah. Just didn't know them. I did like the $1,000 level, though, because it's punny. Yes. A play on the name of a German school of design. The presenter was Eddie Wong. My first restaurant, specializing in Taiwanese Chinese fare, included steamed buns. was called this. Ben, got it? That's Bauhaus. Mm-hmm. Bauhaus. I like Bau, that. yeah. Like the buns. But also mm-hmm. like the... Bauhaus. Yeah, Bauhaus. Daily Double number one is in the doggy bag category at the $400 level. Pick number 23. Ben finds it. He's been on a roll. So he's up to 8,200 already. Cat's at 800 and Laura is at 200. He wagers 7,000, which is the right move here. You got a huge wager or huge lead. Might as well just pile on. Gets the clue. Queen Elizabeth II's beloved dogs included a dorgy named Candy. A mix of these two breeds, and he guesses what are a Dalmatian and a Corgi. That's a Corgi and a Dachshund. Mm-hmm. So if you could make a Corgi look even more just goofy, <laughs> that's how you do it. Yeah. But in like the adorable way. Like yeah. Adorable goofy. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Cat's at 1,000, Laura's at 400, Ben is at 2,400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, one word play titles, Lost with the Titanic, Acting the Oscar winning part, in the dictionary, our nation of immigration, and this land is your land with just you are in quotation marks. I really mm-hmm. like this land. This land is our land. Laura had talked during the interview segment about getting to see a lot of Broadway shows and trying to visit all of the Broadway theaters, having been a theater administrator, but and she was able to get a couple of the one word play t- titles, but Kat also got in on one. Ben got one and there was a triple stumper, yeah. but it was nice to see her talk about theater and then at least get Amadeus and Tartuffe. Yeah. 
the $1,600 level was the triple stumper. And I, I could like, I could see the poster in my mind and I could not remember the title of the thing. This Pulitzer prize winner by Margaret Edson tells of English professor Vivian Baring diagnosed with terminal cancer. That is wit, which I'm remembering, right? Cynthia Nixon was in it. Yeah. Sure. Yes, she was. The $400 clue of our nation of immigration was funny and also curiously timed. The clue is famous Americans of this heritage include Barack Obama seen here on a visit to the old country. And they showed a picture. Cat guessed what is Kenya? That's incorrect. At least not what they were going for. It was a triple stumper. They were looking for Ireland. And Ken said, although I don't believe there's an apostrophe in Obama, which is just a mm-hmm. hilarious joke. But also mm-hmm. this week, J- Joe Biden was in Ireland. Oh, just like on this oh, yeah. day, mm-hmm. he was visiting Ireland. That was coincidental jeopardy. Yeah. I think they knew that was coming. All right. Daily Double number two is in one word play titles at the $1,200 level. And Ben finds it at pick number three. He has an exclamation point on his name. Did we already ben. say that? He's at 2800 with Kat at 1000 and Laura at 400 And he makes it a true Daily Double, which is a good move early in Double Jeopardy. Like, just go for it. There's so much money on the board. And he gets a clue. This August Wilson play about a trash collector and his family was turned into a 2016 film. And he gets it correct. It's Fences. Mm-hmm. And daily double number three is pick number 11. It's in the in the dictionary category at the $2,000 level. And Ben also finds this one. He, I mean, he just controlled the game mm-hmm. the whole time. Yeah. He's up to 10400 Cat is at 3000 Laurie's at 400 Any wagers, only 1000 Gets a clue. French for half gives us the name of this petite cup of something hot. And he gets it correct with what is Demitos. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Ben has a lock with 17,000. Laura's at 8,000. So it would, you know, Ben got the lock, but, you know, Laura wasn't far from breaking the lock. Yeah. yeah. And Kat's at 5,400. And the final Jeopardy category is the Bill of Rights. The clue is England's bloody assizes and a 1685 life sentence for perjury were two main origins of this amendment to the U.S. Constitution. Kat was the only one who got this one correct. She correctly responded, what is the Eighth Amendment, where we find the prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment? And she's wagered everything. Brings her up to 10,800. Laura tried what is the Fourth Amendment and wagered 2801. Dropping her down to 51.99. Ben tried what is the seventh and wagered 999, which drops him down to 16,001. Yeah, so he, he wagered so that if he missed, he would still, you know, not be, he would still have his, his, his lock and, you know, be uncatchable. And that worked out for him. He finished yeah. with 16,001 and the win. Yep. So that brings us to Thursday when we have the contestants Liz Jensen, a stay-at-home mom from Metuchen, New Jersey, Peter Early, a settlement consultant from Wyndham, New Hampshire, and Ben Chan, a philosophy professor from Green Bay, Wisconsin, who just won $16,001. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, The Scenic Southwest, Letter Perfect, In the Air Tonight, Food Stock, Trademark Sounds, and fish out of water that food stock is they take a woodstock band and alter it to include the name of a food Mm -hmm. and peter did really well 
in this category. He he knows his bands and also apparently can just make food puns like <laughs> ba- Bowser and his doo-wop chips. I mean, chaps now covered with gooey cheese and salsa. They were like Shana nachos. Although he rang in and said Shana nachos, Sha nachos not, nah, which yeah, they have to take. <laughs> yeah, Ken was like, we're not being strict about this, which I, I appreciated. I was like, thank you, because these are absurd. <laughs> Yeah, as and like, you, I mean, nothing yeah. in the nothing in the clue says it has to be. I mean, you know, clear, clearly, I think their pun sounds a little better to the ear, right? Mm-hmm. But like, but, it's Jeopardy. We're not we're not penalizing for like lower quality puns, right? So, yeah. So that was an absurd cat. Yes. I did. I went oh four five. <laughs> I figured out Crosby, Stills, Nosh, and Young. I I don't know. My brain like took in the information and just kind of locked up. It was like, I can't, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to be able to open this box at all. Yeah. But it was, you know what? I will say kudos to the writers because it is fresh and different mm-hmm. and it was able to be figured out. So it wasn't, I don't think it was a bad category. I think it was, I think it was good. Just yeah. not, not the route my brain can take. Yeah. Speaking of the routes that brains take the thousand dollar level of trademark sound, this fast food chain trademarked a bong. Bong is in quotation marks. That is evil of middle C. And I'm like, wow, bold of you putting bong right there. Right also, there on the clue. Also, how can a bong be evil of middle C? What does that even mean? <laughs> like, is that the sound when you like, does it bubbles like at that frequency? I don't know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, so that is the, the ringing bell sound of the Taco Bell commercials. That's what they've yeah. met. But my, my, mm, like, Somehow, somehow I made the Taco Bell connection. (laughs) I mean, it's not surprising. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe they played the sound. Did they play the sound? No, they did not. No, no, they just described it. They they played at least one of the trademark sound. They they played the TiVo sound. So I guess they got rights to it or something. Yeah. 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 It was like a bong. Oh, bong. okay. All wow, right. Wow, Jeopardy. All right, man. Mike Davies taking things in a new direction. Yeah, for real. The $200 clue of that category was a lion roaring is a trademark of this movie studio. That's MGM. And for those who are unaware, Sony Picture Studios is on the property that used to be MGM Studios. Mm-hmm. So that was right at home. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number one is in Fish Out of Water. At the $600 level, and Ben finds it at the 14th pick. This category turned out to all be references to fish, but references that happen in non-aquatic settings, like sports teams and video games and whatnot. Mm. Let me let me let me give a couple different examples like constellations and goldfish crackers and whatnot. So that's that's where we find Daily Dumble number one. Ben finds it. Uh, he's at thirty four hundred with Peter at four thousand and Liz at four hundred. And he makes it a true daily double and gets the clue they're the southernmost major league baseball team. And he responds, who are the Marlins? The Miami Marlins? And that's correct. Yes. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Ben is at 10,200. Peter's at 6,000. Liz is at 800. And the double Jeopardy categories are the Book of Romans. Here's a bit of everything. 
Secretaries of State, Triple A, in quotation marks, German literature, and fish out of water on TV. And these fish out of water were characters who were, you know, just placed, not in their elements. Placed into situations that were uncomfortable or like, you know, didn't fit well for them. <laughs> yeah. Like like Ted Lasso. Yes. Actually, you know, I think that situation fits fine for Ted Lasso, but he is kind of a fish out of water there. Y- yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like the whole humor. Of yeah, the, that's the whole thing. Of yeah. At least the first season. Yeah. The Book of Romans had nothing to do with the Bible book. It was no, all books it, about Rome and Romans. Yes. Which it's fine. There were two unfortunate close but not quites for Liz near the end of the round. One of them was in the Romans. The other was in Here's a Bit of Everything. The At the $2,000 level of the Here's a Bit of Everything. The clue is Locust Grove in Louisville, where Lewis and Clark and John James Audubon stayed as guests, could be called this, the state song. And she got in and guessed what is Old Kentucky Home but the song is my old Kentucky home. And that turned into a triple mm-hmm. stumper. And then over in book of Romans at the $800 level, this is pick number 29. So it's very late. The clue is Ovid's causes by K. Sarah Myers is a study of this poem of many mythic transformations. And she got in first and said, what is more metamorphosis? But Ben got the rebound with metamorphoses mm-hmm. because there's many mythic transformations. Yeah. It to be plural unfortunate couple of misses there. Mm-hmm. Daily double number three is in the secretaries of state category at the $1,600 level pick number six. And Ben locates it. He is at 16,200 Peter's at 6,000 and Liz is at 800. He wagers 1600 and gets the clue secretary from 1933 to 1944. Cordell Hull advocated respect for central and South American nations, a policy known by this friendly nickname. And he seems like he's guessing, but he gets it correct with what is the good neighbor policy. Mm-hmm. And um, again, we have this pattern where he finds he he finds the next he gets the next clue correct, and then finds daily double three, which is at the sixteen hundred dollar level of the Book of Romans, and he finds it at pick number eight. Peter and Liz's scores have not moved; they're six thousand and eight hundred. But Ben now is at nineteen thousand, and he wagers three thousand, and he gets the clue. Hermann Brock wrote a novel titled The Death of This Greatest Roman Epic Poet. And he gets it correct with Virgil. So with the help of those daily doubles, as well as, you know, basically everything else, he, Ben, is in a lock position at the end of the game at 27,200. Peter's at 6,400. Liz is at 6,000. The final Jeopardy category is exploration. And the clue is James Cook's account of a 1774 visit here records an object near 27 feet long and upwards of eight feet over the breast and shoulders. Man, I thought of the correct answer and then said, no, it couldn't be that because that's not, that's not the right dimensions. But Liz got it correct with what is Easter Island. Mm-hmm. Rapa Nui and wagered 5,000. Peter wrote what is Rue going for something but didn't quite get there and wagered 1916 and ben got it correct with what is easter island and wagered 2800 for a nice round 30,000. and uh, ken pointed out uh, if you're wondering why the measurements were longer than tall it's because many of the statues had fallen over and i'm like oh mm. duh thanks ken for thinking exactly what i was thinking 
Because mm-hmm. I was like, like I thought immediately thought of thought of Easter Island, and I was like, oh, but those those wouldn't be twenty seven feet wide. What? No, mm-hmm. absurd. Yeah, I had that same thought. No. I'm glad I wasn't on stage. Mm-hmm. And on Friday, we have the contestants Greg Zaja, a cardiologist from San Diego, California, Kari Alsala, a grant strategy consultant from Cleveland Heights, Ohio, and Ben Chan, a philosophy professor from Green Bay, Wisconsin, whose two-day cash winnings total $46,001. And the Jeopardy round categories are New York Knicks, Baker's Dozen, Potent Potable Rhyme Time, Heads I Win, Tails, and You Lose. Nice shout out to us there in the Potent Potables rhyme time we appreciate that that thousand dollar level there is no way i don't i don't know how anybody could have gotten there fraudulent medical recommendations by a cuban cocktail that's daiquiri quackery Mm -hmm. like i see how it fits but i don't i don't how are you gonna (laughs) yeah was anybody gonna get to that Uh uh-huh i was trying to do something with mojito and placebo Mm, interesting which a mojito is Cuban, but a placebo is not really a fraudulent no, medical a, recommendation. Right. It's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. But that's closer than I got. I was like, Cuba Libre. Mm-hmm. Cuba Libre. <laughs> Could not get anywhere from there. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. The rest of the category all got answered correctly, though. And I thought they were fun. Whiskey made in the middle of downtown Lexington or Louisville. That's urban bourbon. Mm-hmm. I like that. And Greg got tripped up on the very first clue of the round at the $800 level of tales. One poem in Longfellow's Tales of a Wayside Inn begins, listen, my children, and you shall hear of this. And that's one of those things we've talked about in, in previous episodes where sometimes the category points to something you need to incorporate into the correct response, but sometimes it's in there in the, in the clue. So tales of a wayside Inn covered our tales category. Um, mm-hmm. He, he tried, what is the tale of Paul Revere? I think trying to, you know, maybe missed that and was trying to make it work with the category. And then Kari got the rebound. It's the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Yup. The daily double number one is in the tales category. Right above that, it's at the $600 level. It's found at pick number four by Kari. She is at 1,200. Ben is at zero. And Greg is at negative 800. And she bets it all, which she should do. Mm-hmm. And gets the clue. Down on its right side toppled the bed of the Roman's chariot, in quotations, in this off-film novel subtitled A Tale of the Christ. And Kari says, what is no answer? Mm. But the writer's thrown us a bone here because it, it's been a while. It's been her. It's been her a while here since mm-hmm. we've talked about Ben. Since we've talked about Ben Hur, Lou Wallace's 1880 novel adapted into I don't know. Has it is it oft filmed? It does that just mean more than once? I think there are two major adaptations. Are there more than? two right like there was the silent one and there was the charlton heston one are there others um you're the one uh, who did the deep dive so i haven't done a deep dive on ben-hur wait i just talk about it every time it comes up it's a bit oh no i'm mandela affecting this oh no (laughs) yeah oh no there's there's been a lot more 
than two okay. films. 1907 silent short film, 1925 MGM silent film, the 1959 with Charlton Heston, 2003 direct to video featuring oh, animated direct to video featuring the voice of Charlton Heston. Okay. So I, I'm going to stand by my, there are two major motion picture adaptations, right? Like there's a silent short, there's a direct to video, like, but there's the two like well-known silent one and the well-known sound one. Mm-hmm. And a 2016, there was a 2016 one, which I do know more about. I do recall that I did seem to have something in my head that there was mm-hmm. a more recent one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I just, I just talk about Ben-Hur all, all the time. So, that brings us to the end of the Jeopardy round. Ben has gotten himself way up in the lead at 8,600. Kari's at 400. Greg is at 2,800. Double Jeopardy categories are the Ottoman Empire, bands with B in quotation marks, world facts, anagrammed scientists, 20th century women, and deity add a letter. The bands category at the $400 level made me, brought me back. Mm. They always fought for your rights. Your mom busted in and said, what's that noise? Oh, mom, you're just jealous. It's this rap trio. That's the Beastie Boys. The Beastie Boys, yeah. Which Kari got. Mm Mm-hmm. I believe I got a Beastie Boys. Clue correct. Nice. When I was on. Though now I can't remember exactly what it was. So I might be making that up, too. Just like you doing a deep dive on Ben-Hur. Mm-hmm. Could be manufacturing memories here. Hey, the $1,200 level of world facts, this very large North American desert has a small dog in its name. In its name, like, I guess the name is the Chihuahua Desert, but like in its name makes it sound like there's like a word play, like word within a word thing, at least Mm -hmm. in my mind. It was was a little bit weirdly worded. Yeah, like shares its name with a breed of small dog or something would in my opinion, be clearer wording. But hey, Ben got it anyway. Mm -hmm. We went kind of in reverse order, like like bottom to top in deity add a letter. And at the $800 level, we had add a letter to the start of the Greek god of war. And you get these female animals. I thought mares. And then I thought... And then I, I, I got, I got mixed up. I got, I got Aries and Mars mixed up and it works either way. You can add a letter to either one and get mares. Yeah, you're right. And then I got all tangled up in my own, in my own thinking. The $400 level, it turned out to have Aries's counterpart, add a letter to the end of the Roman God of War and you get this watery tract that's Marsh. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Ben got both of those. Nobody got chorus and Horus though at the sixteen hundred dollar mm-hmm. level. Yeah, of the Egyptian falcon god, and you get this tuneful group. Hmm. I should note that I talked about Grandma Moses mm-hmm. uh, in a deep dive a while back, and she came up at the twelve hundred dollar level of twentieth century women. Did and I remembered it. Yay! Thanks to that. Hmm. Yes, I also well probably I would have known you know like elderly painter. You know, like mm-hmm. I, fe- sure. I feel like I, I feel like I already had that, but but I I liked learning about her and remembered more about her after after doing that deep dive, which you can find in the back catalog if you are so inclined. Indeed, yeah. Daily double number two is in world facts at the sixteen hundred dollar level, and Greg finds it as pick number seven. 
He's at 3,200 with Ben at 10,600 and Kari at 4,400. And he wagers it all. Hmm. And it's a smart move. There's still a lot of money on the board. Yeah. And he gets the clue as well as president of France. Emmanuel Macron is also considered a co-prince of this nearby nation. He tries what is Monaco, but Andorra is the correct response here. And daily double number three is in the Didi at a letter category at the $2,000 level. Pick number 21, Ben finds it. He's up to, at this point, 15,400. Kari's at 5,600. Greg is at 7,200. And he wagers 5,000. Wants to put this game on ice. Mm-hmm. Gets a clue. Insert a letter in a love god's name, and you get this, a kind of tooth. And it seems to confuse him for a minute, or, well, a minute's a long time, for a couple seconds, but he gets there with cuspid. Mm-hmm. Cupid. Yep. And so he does, in fact, lock the game at the end of the double jeopardy round. Ben is at 20,800. Kari's at 7,200. Greg is at 8,000. The final Jeopardy category is writer's lesser known works. And the clue is known for more philosophical works. He wrote the play La Mandragola, in which Florentines are rewarded for immoral actions. Kari couldn't come up up with anything and uh, she wagered 5,000. So that drops her down to 2,200. But Greg got it correct with who is Machiavelli. He's wagered 4,401, bringing up him up to 12,401 and Ben has it correct as well with who is Machiavelli and a $2,200 wager to bring him up to 23,000 and give him the win. So we'll see him. We'll see him back next week for his fourth game. Yes. Very strong. Mm -hmm. Looking like a real contender. Yes. So that's the week, and this is the break in the middle of the episode when we remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potentpotables, and if you would like to help us offset the costs of making this podcast, you can go over there and pledge a couple of bucks a month. We try to remember to post our quiz questions after we... (laughs) (laughs) I didn't do that. I didn't check whether you do, which is why I emphasized the try, (laughs) just in case. I forgot last time. As you can tell, it's a great value for your money. Um, (laughs) Good point. Yes. uh, Yeah. So... If you, if you want to help us out with the cost of the podcast and maybe sometimes get a quiz question or two a little bit early, um, if we post them, we post all six, honestly, it's, it'll, it'll be six or zero <laughs> pretty much every week. And I'm going to aim for it to be six this week. I'm going to really try. I believe anyway, you. you you can go, you can go uh, see if you want to help us out at patreon.com slash potent potables. And there are other things in the world that do more important things than our podcast and probably probably with a little bit more of a successful hit rate than us posting the quiz, <laughs> quiz questions. I sure hope so. 
<laughs> and some some of the ones we care about are in the show notes. So, Kyle, do you have a deep dive guess? Okay. I mean, I didn't write down Ben-Hur because I was convinced you'd already done it. So Ben-Hur is my first guess. It should be Ben-Hur, but I, I had already chosen before I watched the Friday game. And okay. then and then the work was done. And now I'm kicking myself because it this could have this was my moment. This was my this, moment to do a was, Ben-Hur deep dive. And I missed it. Missed it. Okay. There's some... There, there's some okay. I mean, Desmond Tutu and Mandela were the was the missed final Jeopardy. So I'm gonna guess that one. Yeah, you're correct. Okay. Um, and I I started out with the ambition to talk briefly about each of them, and then I <sighs> found that I could not talk briefly about Desmond Tutu, and you know I didn't think I was gonna be able to talk briefly about Nelson Mandela either. So I had started with Desmond Tutu, and I feel like you know. I'm the minister in this podcasting duo. So, you know, that's what um, I'm going to go with. So that's what I'm going with. Yeah. We're going, we're going back to that missed final jeopardy. I think also Desmond Tutu was the half of the correct response. Like you needed both <laughs> and Mandela came up, but Desmond Tutu did not come up. Yeah. Yeah. So he was yes. the one that was actually like missed. Yeah. He was the missed half of the, <laughs> of the, of the pair. Yeah. So, so I figured we'd talk about Desmond Tutu and, uh, you know, when we get around That's to good. the, when we get around to the quiz, well, then we'll get around to the quiz. So he was born in 1931 on October 7th in Clerksdorp, Transvaal, South Africa. His father was an educator, worked as the principal of a Methodist primary school. And so that's kind of the context that Desmond Tutu was raised in. The family were initially Methodists. Tutu was baptized into the Methodist Church in June of 1932. They subsequently changed denominations, first to the African Methodist Episcopal Church and then to the Anglican Church. And it is in the Anglican Church that Desmond Tutu kind of makes his career and that, you know, we come to know him as a public figure. In 1936, the family moved as the father, Zachariah, became the principal of another school. And Desmond Tutu started his primary education and became the server at St. Francis Anglican Church. Around 1941, Tutu's mother moved to Woodwaterstrand to work as a cook in Johannesburg, and Tutu joined her in the city, where he attended a Methodist primary school before transferring to the Swedish boarding school in the St. Agnes Mission. He underwent confirmation in the Anglican tradition at St. Mary's Church in Rodeport. I'm I'm attempting Afrikaans pronunciations here, and I've looked up what it, there's there's a bunch of languages I don't speak here. So I've looked I've tried to look up pronunciations, and hopefully I'll get many of them right. But sure. yeah. you know, I will I'll ask for everybody's grace as I <laughs> attempt attempt a lot of languages I don't speak over the course of this deep dive. Uh, Tutu entered the Johannesburg Bantu High School in 1945 and excelled academically there. He became a server at the Church of Christ the King in Sophia Town, which is a suburb of Johannesburg. And there got to know its priest, Trevor, Trevor Huddleston. In 1947, Tutu contracted tuberculosis and was hospitalized in Rietfontein for 18 months, during which Reverend Huddleston visited him regularly. He returned to school in 1949 and took his national exams in late 1950. He secured admission to study medicine 
at the University of Waterstrand. But his parents couldn't afford it. And so instead, he turned to teaching. He got a government scholarship to study at Pretoria Bantu Normal College, which was a teacher training institution, and went to school there and did a number of extracurricular kinds of things as well, including chairing the Cultural and Debating Society, where at one event, he met the lawyer and future president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela. The two wouldn't encounter each other again until much later, but, you know, did happen to meet in the early 50s. In 1954, he began teaching English. He also began courting the woman who would become his wife, Leah, a friend of his sister, Gloria. She was studying to be a teacher as well. And they were married in June 1955. And they had a legal ceremony and they had a Roman Catholic ceremony because Leah's family was Roman Catholic. Their first child, Trevor, was born in April 1956. Their daughter, Tandika, was born a little bit later, 16 months later. They worshipped at St. Paul's Church, where Tutu volunteered as a Sunday school teacher, assistant choir master, church counselor, lay preacher, and subdeacon. He's still a lay person and a teacher at this point, but clearly drawn to the church. In 1953, the white minority National Party government introduced the Bantu Education Act, which furthered their apartheid system of racial segregation in the education system, which prompted the Tutus to leave teaching. And that is when Tutu starts to pursue theological education. So with Huddleston's support, he was admitted to St. Peter's Theological College in Rosettenville, Johannesburg. This was a residential college. So he lived there while his wife lived elsewhere, training as a nurse. And their children lived with Tutu's parents. Their daughter, Naomi, was born in August 1960. At the college, Tutu earned a licentiate of theology degree, and he won the Archbishop's Annual Essay Prize. During his years at the college, there had been an intensification in anti-apartheid activism. Tutu and the other students there did not engage very much in anti-apartheid campaigns. He later described that environment as, in some ways, a very apolitical bunch. In December 1960, he was ordained as an Anglican priest and was then appointed assistant curate at St. Albans Parish, where he was able to once again live with his wife and children. His salary was two-thirds of what his white counterparts were making. In 1962, he was transferred to St. Philip's Church in Tokosa, where he was placed in charge of the congregation. And not long thereafter, one of the leaders of his seminary identified him as someone who had you know, gifts and skills to be a, a teacher of theology. They thought that, was, that it was especially important to identify Black Africans who could serve in that capacity because there were not very many you know, in educators from that background at that time. And so uh, Elred Stubbs proposed that he train as a theology teacher at King's College in London. Funding was secured to support those studies, and the government agreed to give the Tutus permission to move to Britain, which they did in September 1962. While they were there, Tutu assisted Sunday services at the Church of St. Alban the Martyr Martyr in Golders Green, his first experience ministering to a white congregation, and another daughter was born there in 1963. 
he was academically successful and his tutor suggested that he convert to an honors degree, which entailed also studying Hebrew, which he did receiving his degree from Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, in a ceremony held at the Royal Albert Hall. He then secured a grant to study for a master's degree, which he completed in September 1966. During this period, the family moved to Bletchingley in Surrey, where he worked as the assistant curate of St. Mary's Church. In 1966, he and the family moved to East Jerusalem, where he studied Arabic and Greek for two months at St. George's College. They then returned to South Africa, settling in Alice, Eastern Cape, in 1967. The Federal Theological Seminary, also known as FEDSEM, apparently, had recently been established there as an amalgamation of training institutions from different Christian denominations. He was employed there teaching doctrine, Old Testament, and Greek. Aaliyah became the library assistant and Tutu was the college's first black staff member. The campus allowed a level of racial mixing, which was rare in South Africa, is what I, what I read. The Tutu sent their children to a private boarding school in Swaziland to keep them out of the South African apartheid education system. Tutu joined a Protest, like an ecumenical Protestant group, the Church Unity Commission, served as a delegate in Anglo-Catholic conversations, became the Anglican chaplain to the neighboring University of Fort Hare. In an unusual move for the time, Tutu invited female as well as male students to become servers during the Eucharist. Yeah. In August 1968, he gave a sermon comparing South Africa's situation with that in the Eastern Bloc, likening anti-apartheid protests to the recent Prague Spring. And in September, Fort Hare students held a sit-in protest over the university administration's policies. And after they were surrounded by police with, with police dogs, Tutu waded into the crowd to pray with them. It was the first time that he had witnessed kind of state power being used so overtly to suppress dissent. In January of 1970, he left the seminary for a teaching post at the University of Botswana, Lesotho, and Swaziland in Lesotho, which brought him closer to his children and doubled his salary. He and his wife moved to the campus. Most of the fellow staff members there were white expatriates from the U.S. or Britain. He also became the college's Anglican chaplain. He joined the executive board of the Lesotho Ecumenical Association. He's just a busy guy. He he just does a ton. Apparently, yeah, it's 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 remarkable. He returned to South Africa on several occasions, including to visit his father shortly before he died. The father, his father, died in February of 1971. He accepted a job with TEF as their director for Africa, which was a position based in England. It's a you know English theological education fund. He took the the job of director for Africa. So he was going to need to move to England. Initially, South Africa's government refused permission regarding him with suspicion because of his praying with protesters, but relented after Tutu argued that his taking the role would be good publicity for South Africa. So he did return to Britain in March 1972. His job entailed assessing grants to theological training institutions and students, which required him touring Africa in the early 1970s, which he, you know, was influential for him. And he wrote accounts of his experiences and what he saw and did and learned in those travels. During those years, his theology continued to develop. He learned about liberation theology. He was attracted to black theology, by which, you know, that that term 
tends to refer to like American black theology. Mm -hmm. Um, He attended Mm -hmm. a 1973 conference on that subject at a Union Theological Seminary in New York City, which is where I got my theological training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In 1975, he was nominated to be the new bishop of Johannesburg, but he lost out to Timothy Bavin. Bavin suggested that Tutu take his newly vacated position, Dean of St. Mary's Cathedral in Johannesburg, which he was elected to. It is the fourth highest position in South Africa's Anglican hierarchy. He was elected to that position in March 1975, the first black man to be elected to that role, and was installed in August of that year. Moving to the city, Tutu lived not in the official dean's residence in the white suburb of Houghton, but rather in a house on a middle-class street in Soweto. I believe that this is the time when he lived on the street that Nelson Mandela also at one point lived on that was referenced in the Jeopardy clue. Mm. The cathedral's congregation was racially mixed, but majority white. And Tutu saw that as kind of a hopeful sign of a desegregated future for South Africa. He encountered some resistance to his attempts to modernize the liturgies used by the congregations, including his attempts to replace masculine pronouns with gender neutral ones. Um, Yeah, he's I mean, I would consider him good on on a lot of issues. Right. You like it's he's not just he's not a one issue guy. Um, As you Mm. as I was reading his biography, I mean, there are the things that he is very well noted for in history. You know, but he is, you know, vocal and thoughtful on a large range of issues. You know, 1975 is before I was around, but changing some of the masculine language to gender neutral was, it is still kind of an ongoing thing in churches and is something that I remember well from churches in my childhood. He used his position to speak out on a variety of social issues, publicly endorsed an international economic boycott of South Africa over apartheid, held a 24-hour vigil for racial harmony at the cathedral where he prayed for activists detained under the government's Terrorism Act. In May 1976, he wrote to Prime Minister B.J. Vorster, warning that if the government maintained apartheid, then the country would erupt in racial violence. Six weeks later, the Soweto uprising broke out with black youth clashing with police. And over the course of 10 months, at least 660 were killed, most under the age of 24. Tutu was angered by what he regarded as the lack of outrage from white South Africans and addressed it in a Sunday sermon, stating that white silence was deafening and asking if they would have shown the same nonchalance had the youths who were killed been white. So, you know, kind of growing political voice. After seven months as dean, he was nominated to become the Bishop of Lesotho. He did not want the position, but he was elected to it anyway in March 1976 and reluctantly accepted. This decision accepted upset some of his congregation who felt that he had used their parish as a stepping stone for the advancement of his own career. And then he began to serve in that capacity returning to South Africa in 1977 for the funeral of Steve Biko, who had been killed by police. That's a name that you should know in connection with South African history. The The role of General Secretary of the South African Council of Churches was open after John Rees stepped down. Tutu was among the nominees for his successor. Ultimately, somebody else, John Thorne, was elected to the position, but then stepped down three months later. And Tutu agreed to take the position over, which then angered 
the people he was leaving behind in that position who felt that he was abandoning them. Classic. Yes, this is, it's, it's, yeah, it, it all rings very true. Tutu became the general secretary of the South African Council of Churches in 1978. And the Tutus returned to their former Soweto home at that point. The South African Council of Churches was one of the few Christian institutions in South Africa where Black people had majority representation and Tutu was its first Black leader. He introduced a schedule of daily staff prayers, regular Bible study, monthly Eucharist, and silent retreats. He was determined that the South African Council of Churches would become one of South Africa's most visible human rights advocacy organizations. His time was dominated with fundraising for the organization's projects. There was kind like a scandal kind of thing he had to deal with having to do with a divisional director who was caught embezzling funds, which in the process of investigating that, there was some some butting heads with government officials. In 1981, Tutu also became the rector of St. Augustine's Church in Soweto's Orlando West. And the following year, he published a collection of his sermons and speeches, Crying in the Wilderness, the Struggle for Justice in South Africa. After Tutu told journalists that he supported an international economic boycott of South Africa, he was reprimanded before government government ministers in October 1979. In March of 1980, the government confiscated his passport, which raised his international profile, paradoxically, Mm -hmm. right? In 1980, the South African Council of Churches committed itself to supporting civil disobedience against apartheid. Desmond Tutu, along with Joe Wing, led a protest march in response to the arrest of another church leader. And in the course of that, they were arrested, imprisoned overnight, and fined. In the aftermath, a meeting was organized between 20 church leaders, including Tutu, as well as government representatives, including seven government ministers and Prime Minister P.W. Bota. At this meeting, the clerical leaders unsuccessfully urged the government to end apartheid. Some clergy saw this dialogue as pointless, but Tutu drew a parallel to Moses going repeatedly to Pharaoh to try to secure the freedom of the Israelites. Mm. In January of 1981, the government returned Tutu's passport, and in March, he embarked on a five-week tour of Europe and North America, meeting politicians including UN Secretary General Kurt Waldheim and addressing the UN Special Committee Against Apartheid. Um, in England, he gave a sermon in Westminster Abbey. In Rome, he met Pope John Paul II. And on his return to South Africa, Bota again ordered Tutu's passport confiscated, preventing him from continuing to, from further travels to collect several honorary degrees. His passport was returned 17 months later. And in September 1982, he addressed the Triennial Convention of the Episcopal Church in New Orleans. Tutu was gaining a popular following in the U.S., where he was often compared to civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., although figures like Pat Buchanan and Jerry Falwell criticized him as an alleged communist sympathizer. Shocking. Um, Shocking. Shocking. (laughs) There was growing international support and admiration for Tutu. At the same time, he was criticized in South Africa. Shocking. Also, a common point of criticism was on the idea that he led a middle class kind of comfortable life, but claimed to represent South African black people who were predominantly poor. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't strike me as especially valid. I guess they had to find something. Yeah. 
1984, he embarked on a three-month sabbatical at the General Theological Seminary of the Episcopal Church in New York City. He was invited while he was in the city to address the UN Security Council and later met the Congressional Black Caucus and the subcommittees on Africa and the House of Representatives and the Senate. He was also invited to the White House, where he unsuccessfully urged President Ronald Reagan to change his approach to South Africa. He was troubled that Reagan had a warmer relationship with South Africa's government than Jimmy Carter had, and later called Reagan a racist, pure and simple. In New York City, he was informed that he had won the 1984 Nobel Peace Prize. He had previously been nominated in 1981, 1982, and 1983. The Nobel Prize Selection Committee had wanted to recognize a South African and thought Tutu would be less con- a less controversial choice than some of the other names that had been brought forward, including Nelson Mandela. Although, of course, Nelson Mandela would later receive a Nobel Peace Prize. After Timothy Bavin retired as Bishop of Johannesburg, Tutu was among five replacement candidates. An assembly met at St. Barnabas's College in October 1984 to elect replacement. And although Tutu was one of the two most popular candidates, the white laity voting block consistently blocked him. And to break the deadlock, a bishop's synod met and decided to appoint him, which led to celebration on one side and anger on another. Some withdrew funds in protest, withdrew their their diocesan quota. Tutu was enthroned as the sixth bishop of Johannesburg in St. Mary's Cathedral in February of 1985. And in his inaugural sermon, he called on the international community to introduce economic sanctions against South Africa unless apartheid was dismantled within 18 to 24 months. Um, The mid-1980s saw growing clashes between Black youth and security services, and Desmond Desmond Tutu was invited to speak at many of the funerals of the youths who were killed. At one such funeral, he intervened to stop the crowd from killing a a Black man accused of being a government informant. He spoke out against the torture and killing of suspected collaborators with the apartheid government, which angered some some black South Africans. So, I mean, this is this is a dynamic that we see differently, but also also in like the U.S. civil rights movement, right? Nonviolence versus you know, kind of strategic use of violence. When Tutu accompanied the U.S. politician Ted Kennedy on on his visit to South Africa in January 1985. He was angered that protesters from the Azanian People's Organization, who regarded Kennedy as an agent of capitalism and American imperialism, disrupted proceedings. So there's kind of, I mean, we can't, we can't do like the whole fall of apartheid here. Like it's, it's too much for a deep dive, even if it were, you know, even if it were our, uh, our subject, right. But there's growing, there is growing, um, chaos and unrest. The ANC calls on its supporters to make South Africa ungovernable. Foreign companies increasingly divest. The South African RAND reaches a new record low. BOTA declares a state of emergency. Who offers to serve as a go-between to help kind of mediate between the government and some of these organizations, but is rebuffed. 
In October 1985, Tutu backs the National Initiative for Reconciliation's proposal for people to refrain from work for a day of prayer, fasting, and mourning. He also proposes a national strike against apartheid, angering trade unions whom he had not consulted before proposing the strike. These are these are such classic activist yeah. organization dynamics. Mm-hmm. Uh, he continued to promote his cause abroad, embarking on a speaking tour in 1985 in the United States and uh, addressed the political committee of the United Nations General Assembly in October of 1985, urging the international community to impose sanctions on South Africa if apartheid was not dismantled within six months. After Philip Russell announced his retirement as the Archbishop of Cape Town in February 1986, plan was formed to get Tutu appointed as his replacement. At the time, Tutu was in Atlanta, Georgia, receiving the Martin Luther King Jr. Nonviolent Peace Prize. He secured a two-thirds majority from both the clergy and laity and was ratified in a unanimous vote by the Synod of Bishops. He was the first Black man in that post, the Archbishop of Cape Town, and was enthroned on September 7th, 1986. After the ceremony, he held an open-air Eucharist for 10,000 people. He moved into the Archbishop's residence in Bishop's Court, which was illegal because he did not have official permission to reside in the Archbishop's residence, which was in a white area. Yeah. He obtained money from the church to oversee renovations of the house and had a children's playground installed on its grounds. Tutu drew on African kind of models in his in his leadership approach, a stronger emphasis on consensus building in church meetings with the goal of reaching compromise and finding finding a way to have unanimous rather than divided votes. He secured approval for the ordination of female priests in the Anglican Church. He appointed gay priests to senior positions and privately, but not at the time publicly, criticized the church's insistence that gay priests remain celibate. He mediated mediated conflicts between black protesters and security forces. He was opposed on principle to capital punishment, and in March 1988, took up the cause of the Sharpeville Six, who had been sentenced to death, met personally with Bota to discuss the matter in a in a meeting that is said to have been quite contentious, but their death sentences were ultimately commuted. In May 1988, the government launched a covert campaign against Tutu, printing leaflets and stickers with anti-Tutu slogans, and there were paid protesters paid to protest against him when he arrived at the airport. Traffic police briefly imprisoned his wife, Leah, when she was late to renew her license, you know how it is you get you get <laughs> yes that's that's just how it is you forget to renew your driver's license directly to jail um, it's normal normal the the security police organized assassination attempts on various anti-apartheid christian leaders but claimed never claimed never to have attempted to arrange for tutu's assassination because he was too high profile he remained actively involved in civil disobedience against the government. In August of 1989, he helped to organize an ecumenical defiance service at St. George's Cathedral, joined protests at segregated beaches outside Cape Town, organized a church memorial for protesters who had been killed in clashes with the security forces, organized a protest march through Cape Town, which the new president, uh, de Klerk, we know that name, agreed to permit. A multiracial crowd containing an estimated 30,000 people took part. 
and that march inspired similar demonstrations across the country. In February of 1990, the clerk lifted the ban on political parties like the ANC, and Tutu telephoned him to praise the move, Then, and de Klerk then announced Nelson Mandela's release from prison. Nelson Mandela and his wife Winnie stayed at Bishop's Court on Mandela's first night of freedom, and Tutu and Mandela met for the first time in 35 years at Cape Town City Hall, where Mandela spoke to the assembled crowds. Tutu invited Mandela to attend an Anglican Synod of Bishops in February 1990, where Mandela described Tutu as the people's archbishop. So as we kind of get to the election of Nelson Mandela and his inauguration ceremony, Desmond Tutu is very involved in all of that and takes leadership in planning the religious component of Mandela's inauguration ceremony, insisting that it be interfaith, that there be representation from Christian, Muslim, Jewish, and Hindu leaders at that ceremony. He became president of the All Africa Congress of Churches and traveled in that capacity, visiting Rwanda shortly after the genocide to preach there. He spoke out about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, drawing a parallel between Israel's treatment of Palestinians and South African apartheid. He spoke out out as well about the troubles in Northern Ireland condemning violence on all sides. And in 1994, he announced his intention of retiring as Archbishop in 1996. Before he retired, though, there's kind of a big piece of his career that we haven't touched on at all. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was formed in 1995, with Tutu named as one of 17 commissioners. Tutu proposed a threefold approach for the TRC. Confession, is the first part. The second is forgiveness in the form of legal amnesty. And the third is restitution. Nelson Mandela named Tutu as the chair of the TRC. And the commission was a significant undertaking. 300 staff divided into three committees, holding as many as four hearings simultaneously. Tutu advocated restorative justice, which has come to be, I don't know, I feel like I I hear restorative justice kind of more in the in the 2020s than I heard it in my seminary education, but it was, you know, it was part of the model at this already at this point in mid 1990s, which he connected to the spirit of Ubuntu, which is a it's an African concept that's very much part of his theology. It's about like interconnectedness. That's an oversimplification, but I, I <laughs> I've read a couple books about Ubuntu theology, so I've I've got to stop there or I'll go on too long. So he served on the TRC, and in particular, he chaired the committee which heard accounts of human rights abuses, and during testimony would sometimes be overwhelmed with emotion and cry during the hearings. He presented the five volume TRC report to Mandela in a public ceremony in Pretoria in October of 1998. In January of 1997, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer and traveled abroad for treatment, publicly revealing his diagnosis in the hope of encouraging other men to be screened and, you know, seek medical treatment. He faced recurrences of the disease in 1999 and again in 2006. He served as a visiting professor at Emory University. I think there was another visiting professorship somewhere in here that I missed. (laughs) Um, And uh, during that period, 1998 to 2000, wrote a book about the TRC called No Future Without Forgiveness. He continued to speak out on a range of social issues, vocally criticizing 
the 1998 Lambeth Conference of Bishops reaffirmation of the church's opposition to homosexuality. He was vocally critical of the Iraq war. He launched a campaign to combat child trafficking, lots of stuff. In October 2010, he announced his retirement from public life so that he could spend more time at home with my family, reading and writing and praying and thinking. And he died from cancer in 2021. So just a couple years ago. Yeah. At the Oasis Frail Care Center in Cape Town at the age of 90. This was during the COVID-19 pandemic. So attendance at his funeral was limited to 100, which I mean, still is still is a lot, but it was Desmond Mm -hmm. Tutu. So during the funeral, his body lay in a plain pine coffin, the cheapest available at his request that he wanted to avoid any ostentatious displays. So I have skipped major parts of Desmond Tutu's life, but hopefully that gives folks who, you know, don't know a whole lot about him a little bit more of a sense of, you know, who he was and what he was about. It It is astounding, you know, the amount of stuff that he did. He wrote a, a lot of books. I looked at the list on Wikipedia and I have books on my shelf that aren't on the Wikipedia list. So wow. the Book of Forgiving. That one he wrote with his daughter. There's another one called the Book of Joy, I think, that he wrote with the Dalai Lama. Yes. And both of those are very, like, kind of friendly to the lay reader. No Future Without Forgiveness is a really good one if you want to really dig into Truth and Reconciliation Commission stuff. His children's books are great, too. There's Desmond Tutu Children's Storybook Bible, which is great if somebody is looking for, you know, a children's Bible. God's Dream is a board book that I bring to church and share with children during children's sermons all the time. So his his written work is great as well. And, you know, I don't know. He's he's so cool. I, I feel like I talked about him forever and I didn't even begin to do him justice. So, wow. yeah. yeah. So that's Desmond Tutu. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been long. So are you ready for a quiz? I guess so. Okay. So back when I was going to talk briefly about Desmond Tutu, which I should have known was a fool's errand. I was like, you know what? Archbishop Desmond Tutu Nelson Mandela. That's six words. That'll be six questions. That's what we'll do. So, so I'm keeping, I'm keep, I kept the theme. So that is, that's the quiz structure. So question one, in 1952, architect Stanley Clark Meston sketched what one architectural historian described as a tapered, sophisticated parabola with tense springing lines conveying movement and energy for two brothers, Richard and Maurice, who built those structures on either side of their business. Meston's design has been adapted over the years, but remains an iconic part of the visual branding of what business, the name of which comes from the brothers' shared surname? This is the arch question, Yeah, that helps. So, okay, can you give me the description again? A tapered, sophisticated parabola with tense springing lines conveying movement and energy. And they built one on each side of the building. I mean, my guess is if it's arches, I would think McDonald's. It is McDonald's. Okay. Yes. I would not, commu- <laughs> I, that does not communicate like, t- you know, tense lines yeah. with, with energy. 
Yeah, I think they brought him a sketch of like kind of a half circle (laughs) and the architect developed it into the kind of, you know, the more stylized arch that now forms the the M. Although the original golden arches, they didn't form an M, right? Unless you, I guess, unless you were like at exactly the right angle, right? Because they like one arch went over one side of the building and the other arch went over the other side of the building. They were like Mm -hmm. parallel to each other. And, uh, you know, the development of the arches into the M has been, has been a subsequent thing. There was a third smaller arch sign at the roadside with a pudgy character in a chef's hat known as speedy striding across the top trimmed in animated neon. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, McDonald's is correct. So you're at 20 points. And question two, Bishop. In A Christmas Carol, Ebenezer Scrooge offers Bob Cratchit a raise and suggests that they discuss it over a smoking bishop. A smoking bishop is a particular recipe of what more general kind of potent potable. In It's a Wonderful Life, Clarence orders that more general kind of potent potable Heavy on the cinnamon and light on the clove. I believe that's mulled wine. It is. It's mulled wine. Yes. And a smoking bishop is heavy on the cloves. Oh. Yeah. The the recipes that I found had like cloves and orange and sugar in like a combination of red wine and ruby port. So that's what a smoking bishop is apparently. All right. Question three. Desmond Doss a devout Seventh-day Adventist, was the only member of what group of people to receive the Medal of Honor for his actions during World War II? He was portrayed by Andrew Garfield in a 2016 film, and it turns out I've actually mentioned him in a deep dive quiz before because others who share this same identity were subjects in scurvy studies. Well, I know, like... What group of people? I like he didn't fight, mm-hmm. so like a conscientious objector. Yes, yes, conscientious okay. objectors is what I was going for. I was like, what? Like, how do I characterize? Like, yes. how yeah. do you characterize that? Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, Desmond Doss, the famous conscientious objector who saved seventy-five men in the Battle of Okinawa. That's the the thing that he received the Medal of Honor for. All right. Hey, this is going great. You're at 40 points. Question four. Maybe this is kind of a gimme. I had a hard time coming up with a tutu question. The derivation of the word tutu is unknown, but one theory is that it comes from the name of the netted fabric of which tutus are often made. What is that fabric called? Uh, is that tool? It is tool. Yes. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't really know what to say else about that (laughs) except that i guess the things that i couldn't figure out how to turn into a question are that tutus originally the first tutus were what are now called romantic tutus and they are like tool like fluffy tool skirts that like drape to the ankle Hmm. yeah so the 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 more the common modern that's the word is not that Mm -hmm. yeah so so yeah other other kinds of of tutus the pancake tutu is maybe what you picture when you picture a tutu, right? Mm-hmm. It's like the shape of a pancake. Right. Um, Straight out flat. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's see. Oh, I was about to say you're at 40 points, but no, you are at 50 points. 
question five. Anne B. Davis portrayed Alice Nelson on what 1970s television show and Nick at Night rerun staple? Oh, this is Nelson, right? Alice Nelson. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her character's name is Alice Nelson. The other eight main characters of the show share a last name. Right. That's the Brady Bunch. It is the Brady Bunch. I have no explanation for how much time of my life I've spent watching the Brady Bunch. There was something about it that like, our, I don't know. Our parents were like, here, watch this. <laughs> it was so it has kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did the girls in the Brady Bunch all change their last names? I guess they must have. When they right? got married or what? Yeah. Well, oh, you mean when, when the parents got married? Yeah. the Right. Cause it was like, like the dad had three Brady's boys and the before, mom, had, right? Yeah. yeah. Unless, unless coincidentally. <laughs> she had already been married to a Brady. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Who knows? All right. Well, hey, you're at 60 points. And we'll call the final question world religions. The final category, world religions. Okay. I mean, I have a chance to go for a maximum 120 points. So I'll bet it all. You, you do. And I was scrambling to get this question written. So I think maybe it's on the easy side. So all right, for 120 points, Mandela is the last name of the Nobel Peace Prize winner. What similar sounding word describes a geometric configuration of symbols used as a focal point for meditation in re- religions, including Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, and Shinto? Man. So, okay. Mandala is coming to mind, and I don't know if it's that similar or if it's a little bit different. But I'm not sure that I'm going to come up with anything else. So I'm going to say Mandala. Mandala is correct. Nice. Yeah. Yes. You got it. There are loads of different mandala traditions and, you know, styles and stuff. One time at my seminary, we had Buddhist monks come and do a sand mandala, which it's this whole like spiritual meditative process of making the mandala and then it is destroyed. Hmm. And like the impermanence is <clears throat> the impermanence is kind of part of the the meaning. Sure. The, the practice. You know, that you, you, you know, that it's this beautiful, elaborate thing that is destroyed very soon after it's completed. Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah. Well, hey, 120 points. Nice job. Thank you. It feels good. Yeah. I think you've, I think maybe you've maxed out the quiz before. I think so, but think it still feels have, good to do it again. Yeah, no, it's fun. All right. Well, thank you as always for making a podcast with me and for listening, <laughs> listening to me chatter on about Desmond Tutu and his many, many accomplishments. Yes. <laughs> yeah. my, my pleasure. <laughs> and thank you listeners. I, I appreciate you being here and listening and hopefully you'll learn something about Desmond Tutu. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, leave a rating or review. If you, if you'd be so kind, if you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potent potables. And if you have friends who are fans of jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And we'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.